Long before anyone could blame violence on video games, three boys just out of their teens became robbers and killers in Chicago with brazen acts of thievery and the taking of human lives. Today we're discussing the automatic trio and the car barn murders. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Disclaimer, this episode deals with criminal acts, including murder, as well as capital punishment. Parental discretion is advised. It was a foggy night on August 30th, 1903. At the City Railway Company at 61st and State Street, Frank Stewart, 19 years old and the son of the barn boss, was counting the receipts of the day, piles of silver coins, stacks of paper bills, and a few pieces of gold on the desk in front of him. Stewart was also a student at Armour Institute, which would eventually become the Illinois Institute of Technology. William B. Edmond, the receiver, and William Beale, a clerk, were in the room with him. $2,500, approximately $75,000 in today's money, was nearly finished being counted out. Asleep on the bench just outside the office was 35-year-old James B. Johnson, a motorman getting some rest before his upcoming shift. The sound of glass breaking startled the men, as did a gun thrust through the broken office window. A voice allegedly yelled, Hands up! A shot was fired into the room, striking young Frank Stewart, mortally wounding him. Henry Beale, partially obscured from the robbers and fearing for his life, dropped to his knees and shuffled to a nearby closet, gashing his head along the way before the robbers entered the room. Beale remained hidden, witness to the ensuing carnage in the office. William Edmond, the receiver, started to get up from his chair when he was shot in the leg. He fell to his knees, moving slightly as if to reach for a weapon in his pocket. The robbers, now in the room, advanced toward Edmond. One of the robbers pointed a gun at his face and said, You want some more, do you? Edmond faintly declared he was out of the fight. One of the robbers allegedly responded, Well, stay out of it then. Then over on your face and don't look up. If you make a move, we'll kill you. Kill you sure. The sound of the commotion woke James Johnson, the motorman asleep on the bench. As he started to rise, he was shot in the head before he was likely even awake enough to know what was happening. Thinking all employees had been dealt with, the robbers used a sledgehammer to break into the inner cash office gather the money, and escape into the night. From the first shot to when the robbers had their loot was just three minutes. William Beale emerged from his hiding spot, grabbed a gun from the desk, and ran outside, firing the gun into the air to alert anyone in the area before collapsing from blood loss from his head wound. Beale would survive. Killed this night were young Frank Stewart and James Johnson. Making this night even more tragic was the news that the widow of James Johnson, the sleeping motorman awakened by the noise, had been widowed seven years before when her previous husband was shot to death while serving as conductor on a Southside streetcar. The Johnsons had three small children left fatherless by this senseless crime. Police were there in minutes but had little to go on. A few people in the area gave vague descriptions of shadowy figures and a tall man in a gray coat, but nothing solid was found. 
bullets were pulled from the wall of the railway office that matched ones similar to those from a, quote, particularly destructive revolver which was put on the market recently, according to the Chicago Tribune story the next day. Those bullets were also identical to ones fired during a North Avenue saloon holdup earlier that summer. A dragnet was announced, and other than a young man from Indiana who admitted to the crime, then immediately recanted, and a badly crippled man, police were stumped. A $1,000 reward was announced for information about those responsible for the car barn murders. The three friends grew up in the Lakeview and Roscoe Village neighborhoods on the city's northwest side to working-class families. Peter Niedermeyer and Gustav Marx graduated from grammar school at Hamilton Elementary on Cornelia, just south of Addison Street. Harvey Van Dyne graduated from Audubon School, just west of there. All were described as bright and likely could have gone on to live prosperous lives, but none of them seemed interested in traditional work. They formed a club, the Monticello Pleasure and Athletic Club, and made their headquarters in an abandoned brick building near the north branch of the Chicago River. Niedermeyer, Marx, and Van Dyne, great name for a law firm, weren't super ambitious criminals, not at first at least, and stuck to petty crimes. Things began to escalate quickly when the three were arrested for stealing lead pipe fittings from the Audubon School in their neighborhood, which got them locked up for a time at the local jail. Angry at the world and at Chicago police, the three decided to go all in on a life of crime, acquiring automatic pistols and branding themselves the Automatic Trio. They eventually added another member named Emil Roski, but the gang's name, now with four members, remained Trio. Nearly two months before the car barn murders, T.W. Lathrop a ticket agent, and Martin Doherty, a telegraph operator, were working at the Clybourne Junction station of the Northwestern Railroad at midnight on July 3rd. A tall man approached, pressing himself against the window. Lathrop and Doherty spotted the revolver held tightly in the man's hand, pointed toward them, poking through the opening in the lattice. When the tall man commanded the men to hold up their hands, Lathrop lunged for a revolver on the nearby desk, before he could reach it, a volley of shots sprayed across the room. Lathrop was hit in the torso and fell to the floor. Doherty scrambled through a back door and ran down the street. The thieves entered the station and took $70 in cash and approximately $50 in railway tickets before escaping. Doherty notified the police, who were able to get Lathrop medical help. Lathrop eventually recovered enough to identify the wrong man for the shooting. That man was later released. Six days later, on July 9th, two or three men, these stories differ depending on the source, entered a saloon on North Ashland Avenue just south of Roscoe Street, owned by Ernest Spires, shortly before midnight. Spires, another patron, and a 19-year-old boy named Otto Balder were inside. The men ordered the three to hold up their hands. 19-year-old Bauder, apparently frightened, made a break for the door. Two of the robbers fired at him, hitting him in the back. The men searched the saloon keeper, taking $40. Otto Bauder died the next day. 
One day later, while police searched for the killers of Otto Bauder, the three robbers struck again, this time at Greenberg's Saloon on the southeast corner of Addison and Roby, now called Damon, less than a mile from the one the day before. The bartender did not put up a fight, and the trio merely forced him into the walk-in icebox before making off with $25. Two days after that, the three men robbed a saloon at Roscoe and Sheffield. No shots were fired, but threats were made that anyone trying to escape would be killed. On July 20th, the robbers wounded a saloon keeper named Peter Gorky during a robbery on Milwaukee Avenue. On August 2nd, during another robbery at a bar at 2120 West North Avenue, the robber shot and killed the owner, Benjamin Lagrasse, when the owner tried to reach for a gun at the end of the bar. A 21-year-old customer named Adolph Johnson tried to intervene and was also shot. A third customer at the bar kept his hands up and was not harmed. Johnson survived long enough to give the police a description, but died the next day. That's six stick-ups in less than one month and three dead. Adding the two dead from the car barn murders and the automatic trio had racked up five kills. After the car barn robbery, the automatic trio and their lackey, Emil Roski, headed east on 61st Street into Jackson Park, where 10 years earlier the world marveled at the sights and sounds of the World's Fair of 1893. They divided up the money, giving Roski a much smaller portion. They then boarded a Cottage Grove cable train and headed north to Clark and Randolph Streets. They spent the next day in Chicago's Humboldt Park before heading to Colorado, By now, they had new criminal aspirations, ones involving robbing trains. After a few days in Denver, they headed to Cripple Creek, Colorado, where they purchased a bundle of dynamite in a neighboring mining town before taking a train back to Chicago. The automatic trio's hopes of becoming train robbers in the fall of 1903, Chicago did not come to fruition. After packing 50 pounds of dynamite near the northwestern tracks at Jefferson Park, they sent Emil Roski to stand near the tracks with a red lantern, waving it to get the train conductor to stop. The conductor smartly did not stop, and the robbery was foiled. At this point, they might have been able to continue to elude police, but the automatic trio had gotten loud and flashy, showing off their assortment of guns and wads of cash in local pubs, the kind of stuff that will get the attention of the local police in any era. With the suspect in mind, Assistant Police Chief Herman Schutler told his men the goal was to bring Gustav Marx in alive. Schutler told the two men specifically tasked with bringing Marx in, Detective John Quinn and William Blall, quote, you want to be ready for him. Quinn responded, quote, I'll be ready for him. Don't you worry about me. I can pull a cannon as quick as he can. On November 21st, 1903, Gustav Marx was drinking at Greenberg's Saloon. If the name sounds familiar, it's the same saloon at Addison and what is now Damon Avenue that Marx and the others robbed in July of that year. 
just a few weeks before this late November evening at Greenberg's, Marx told an acquaintance, quote, The police want me. I will never be taken alive. Showing a revolver, Marx said, This will stop some of them, and if it fails, this, as he brought a second gun out, will lay some of them down. At 10.30 p.m. on November 21st, Detectives Quinn and Blal spotted Marx through the saloon's window. Quinn entered through the front door while Blal slipped in through a side entrance. Mark spotted Quinn in the bar mirror and drew down before Quinn had a chance to react, firing five shots at the detective, striking him with one. Quinn dropped to the ground. Spinning toward Blal, Marks's gun jammed, giving Blal a chance to shoot at Marks and wound him. Blal held the wounded Marks down and waited for backup. The first member of the automatic trio was finally in custody. Within days, Marks was eager to talk and quickly named his cohorts in crime... There was no promise of a reduction in his sentence. He seemed eager to brag about being a young desperado, as he was called in the papers, and seemed angry that his friends didn't break him out of jail like they had discussed. He even went as far as to tell police where they could find the remaining members of the automatic trio. We'll get to that in a moment. In light of a 2021 tragedy involving Chicago police officer Ella French, I thought I'd share this story from the funeral of Detective John Quinn, shot dead by Gustav Marx. This comes from the Thursday, November 26th, 1903, Inter-Ocean Newspaper in Chicago. Quinn was laid to rest the day before. Quinn's funeral was held at St. Andrew's Church on Addison and Polina, a church still there today. Father McGuire, who was a policeman in Ireland before coming to the States, started the service with this declaration, quote, I charge the blood of John Quinn, a good citizen, faithful officer, kindly husband, and father to the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. Then came this, I repeat that John Quinn's life was sacrificed to an assassin's bullet only because of the shameless laxity of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois in enforcing the law prohibiting the indiscriminate use of firearms. Had the authorities done their duty by upholding and strictly enforcing a law written on behalf of public safety, policeman John Quinn would have been alive today. Failure to uphold the statutes is directly responsible for many murders, and the wretch who took the life of honest John Quinn is not alone responsible for the assassination. The privilege of carrying firearms should and must be curtailed, and vile wretches deprived of the opportunity of wreaking a murderous vengeance. This was in 1903. As I and many others often say... History repeats. During questioning, Gustav Marx made it sound like the tight bonds the automatic trio, plus Emil Roski, had started to unravel. He claimed Niedermeyer planned to kill Roski, and Marx said he didn't trust Niedermeyer and feared he would eventually shoot him in the back and take his share of the money. Marx finally told police that the robbers had a hideout over the state line into Indiana, dug into an area near a railroad. Although the police didn't particularly trust Marx's word, they went to check it out. After a fair amount of searching, the detectives found the dugout surrounded by fresh footprints. They had found their men, 
shouting for the bandits to come out, the response they received from the darkness of the dugout was this. We'll come out when you carry us out. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American, hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. Peter Niedermeyer began to slowly walk up the steps. The detectives took a breath, thinking the robbers were surrendering, but in a flash, Niedermeyer drew his guns and started blasting. Officer Joseph R. Driscoll was shot in the abdomen. Officer Matthew Zimmer was hit in the arm. As Niedermeyer ducked out of sight, Harvey Van Dyne exited the dugout, firing another shot at the already wounded Officer Zimmer, striking him in the head. Emil Roski followed close behind. With the police in pursuit, the remaining robbers ducked into a wooded area, firing wildly toward the officers. Niedermeyer was grazed by a bullet on his neck, but was able to keep running. More police were called in. The original five policemen followed the trail of footprints and blood drops through the snow. One set of footprints broke away from the rest. These belonged to Emil Roski, who was wounded in the shootout. Roski would be captured later that day after having made it to a train station where he bought a ticket back to Chicago. While he waited at the station, police burst in and captured him without incident. Niedermeyer and Van Dyne made their way about four miles to East Tulliston, Indiana, where they found a number of idling trains. They approached one of the engines and commanded a brakeman named Sovia to take them to the town of Liverpool, Indiana. When he refused, Niedermeyer shot him, killing him instantly. The next brakeman they found did as they asked. Now pursued by additional police as well as an independent posse of locals hot on their heels, Niedermeyer and Van Dyne must have known the end was near. Hiding in a cornfield, the local posse, shotguns in hand, caught up to them and fired a few rounds into the cornstalks to let the robbers know they meant business. After all their bluster and killing, when faced with the angry mob, Harvey Van Dyne pleaded, quote, Be merciful. I have a mother, and I want to see her before I die. Officer Joseph R. Driscoll, the one shot in the abdomen at the dugout in Indiana, died of his wounds the next day. In a six-month period, the automatic trio, all in their early 20s, killed eight men. After their capture, the robbers were brought to the Cook County Jail. According to a jailer there named John L. Whitman, quote, At first they were careless and indifferent. Later they became morose and thoughtful. Whitman went on to share, quote, They were unresponsive and unreceptive, cowardly 
yet desperately foolhardy. They offered greater problems than the trickiest, most hardened old-timers of the calculating school. There seemed to be no rule to fit them. The four men were eager to confess to, really brag about, all their crimes. Niedermeyer demanded his mother be given the reward money for all the crimes to which he confessed. All told, they had robbed 114 people and killed eight in their short crime spree. Niedermeyer, Van Dyne, and Marx were tried together, with Roski tried separately as he was not present at the car barn murders. The trial of the main three was brief, and the automatic trio were convicted on March 12, 1904, and sentenced to death by hanging. At the time of his conviction, Emil Roski was described as a dull-witted youth who ate only with his fingers, would not sleep in a bed, and mainly did chores for the other three. The only involvement Roski had in the crimes perpetrated by the other three, according to his defense attorney, was when the gang tried to rob a train and Roski was tasked with waving a red lantern to get the train to stop. Roski was found guilty on April 20th, 1904, but the jury did not sentence him to death as there was some doubt as to whether he was responsible for any of the killings. A little more than one month later, with a crowd of 1,000 waiting outside for news held back by 100 police, Gustav Marx, age 23, Peter Niedermeyer, age 23, and 21-year-old Harvey Van Dyne were hanged on April 22, 1904. Emil Roski, just 18 years old, was sentenced to life imprisonment at Joliet. Twelve years later, in 1916, Emil Roski was declared insane and moved to the Chester Asylum for Insane Criminals at the Southern Illinois Penitentiary in Chester, Illinois. Officials at Joliet said he could not live for more than six months. The Chester Asylum would later be renamed the Chester Mental Health Center, and the Southern Illinois Penitentiary became Menard Correctional Center. In May of 1970, the then 84-year-old Emil Roski was paroled to a nursing home after serving 66 years at the Chester Mental Health Center in downstate Illinois. He was just one of 35 elderly inmates of the psychiatric ward granted paroles. Peter Benzinger, then director of the Illinois Department of Corrections, described the men as, quote, abandoned souls. End quote, with no relatives and unable to function for themselves in society. Of the 35 elderly men being paroled, the youngest was 62. Emil Roski was the oldest. Prison records revealed that during his 66 years of imprisonment, Emil Roski never received a single visitor. Perhaps inspired by the notoriety achieved by the automatic trio, a year after the three members of the car barn bandits were hanged, other boy bandits were active in the city, seemingly not swayed against pursuing their thieving ways by the chance they too might die hanging at the end of a rope, like Peter Niedermeyer, Gustav Marx, or Harvey Van Dyne, or being sentenced to a life in prison, like Emil Roski.
for listening to today's episode about the Automatic Trio and the Car Barn Murders. I'll have plenty of pictures and items related to the events discussed in this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages throughout the coming week, as well as links to books and such. If you'd like to learn more, anything purchased through those links, not just the items listed, may earn this podcast a small commission and help offset production costs. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on those social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. If you have time, please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend about it. It really does make a difference. I will be back soon with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.